Good evening, everybody. We're glad you're here. I'm also glad the weather is cooperating better. Let's begin with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that spring is coming. And Lord, we pray that as we take this time together this evening to study your holy word, as we study the book of Daniel, we pray for the infilling of your sweet spirit. Come into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. This evening, as we begin the book of Daniel, chapter 7, I want to begin with a review of chapter 4. Now, if you remember, what we were doing is we're following the chronological sequence of the kings in this seminar, which is the reason we skip from 4 to 7. Okay, because we're still in the time of the Babylonians. And notice in chapter 4, when we left off, Daniel's influence over the years was very positive on the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's pride was very great. God had to do something extreme to humble him if he was going to be saved. This is the second dream. Chapter 4 is the second dream that's mentioned in the book of Daniel. He again called for the wise men, then for Daniel at last, in whom he recognized the spirit of the holy God. We find, too, that a tree represents a man. Oftentimes, it represents a righteous man. And notice here, doesn't necessarily mean that King Nebuchadnezzar was righteous at the time, but through the Messiah, the rock that he saw, he would become righteous. And so we find here that the tree is cut down. This meant humiliation or removal of the tree, leaving only a stump to generate new life. We can equate that to the born-again experience in modern times. For seven years, Daniel likely held the government together. Now, it is possible that Nebuchadnezzar's son, perhaps even with the regent, uh, or even his son-in-law, might have held it together. But the Bible is very silent. But it would seem that Daniel would have been very influential in either case. He might have actually been running it at the time. The king was warned one year before the event actually happened. He was humiliated, but he changed when he regained his senses. At the end of the seven years, instead of looking down at the grass, it says he looked up to the heavens. And when he looked up, his senses were restored to him. Do you recall offhand what disease he may have had? What? Lycanthropy or probably bovcanthropy. Bovcanthropy applies more to cattle, okay? And uh, there are many who, uh, you'll find in many books that they, they speculate that this is what it was. Now, God restored him to power, but this time as a humble servant of the true God, Yahweh, the, the living God. In verse 37, it shows that he was a converted man who publicly admitted his failure and his punishment that God brought to him. 
praising God for his forgiveness and his uh, restoration. And thus he records this in the fourth chapter. This is the only chapter in the book of Daniel that is written by a pagan king. You see, the king does not force people to believe him or to accept his God. He ruled righteously thereafter until his death. He would only live a couple more years or so, but he, he lived well in harmony with God's will. And God can even save the proudest heathen if he will submit to him. And so we find things end with a positive for King Nebuchadnezzar. And the chapter itself, when it comes to conclusion, it comes to a conclusion with something unusual. What was that? Anybody remember? It's what he doesn't do. What was that? He doesn't pass any decrees. He doesn't force anybody to worship the God he is now worshiping. Before, he would have set off with their heads if they didn't go along with him. And so we move now into chapter 7, which would be the logical uh, order if you're going by the kings. Notice here, Nebuchadnezzar now is gone. He's dead. And his grandson, Belshazzar, comes to the throne. Now it's interesting because for a long time, those who were skeptical of the Bible said, see, the Bible's wrong. Because the Bible says that Belshazzar was the last king on the throne of Babylon. Well, historians said, no, it was Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Nabonidus, or Nebonidus, as he's sometimes called, that he was on the throne. And so the Bible's wrong and the historian's right. Well, that charge was quickly abandoned when they discovered in some of the, uh, the ancient tablets that they dug up that his father left Babylon, went off to Arabia, he retired to Arabia, and he left his son on the throne. They were co-regents at the time, co-kings if you want. And, but it was Belshazzar who was actually on the throne when the downfall of Babylon happened. And notice also it says, in the first year of Belshazzar. Now you need to realize also that in the Middle East and elsewhere, they oftentimes do not count the ascension year or any part of that year would be considered one year. For instance, if Nebuchadnezzar was uh, made king one month before the new year, that year would be considered his first year. That one month would be considered his first year. So when the calendar turns over, he's automatically in his second year. So this is how they oftentimes accounted it. And the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. All right, so notice before it was the king who was having the dreams, right? In this case, it's not. It's Daniel who's having the dream. Daniel 2, the king had a dream. Then he calls Daniel in. But here... Daniel himself is having the dream. And 
By the way, it mentions dreams and visions. Generally, they're the same, but basically, visions are usually in the daytime and dreams are at night. Although, it is possible that they're interchangeable terms uh, in some cases. Look at verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. First off, the vision of, of by night, before the king saw it, but couldn't remember it. Here, we find Daniel saw it and did remember it. He didn't need anybody to interpret it for him. And behold, the four winds of the heavens. Even today, we use the term, well, the winds of strife are blowing, or the winds of war are blowing. This is a very biblical term. Wind, in the scriptures, symbolizes conflict or warfare. Notice it said it blew on the great sea. People, nations, uh, are considered water or sea in the scripture, in prophetic typology. And notice, so, this is basically saying that there was turmoil in the nations and conflict was breaking out. Look at verse 3. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. All right, diverse one from from another means they were different beasts. And they came up from among the peoples. What people? The people in that area, the... um, Basically, Europe and the Middle East. Notice in Daniel 2, we, uh, we ran into the great empires. We find that the, the head of gold was Babylon, right? And then the chest was made of silver for the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. The thighs were made of, uh, represented Greece, made of brass. And we find that the legs of iron represented Rome. After that, it was divided. It was broken up from within. Very interesting how that happened. I may get into that later, but not now. But in Daniel 7, we find that instead of metal representing these kingdoms, we find now animals representing the kingdoms. The first was like a lion. Now, the lion is the king of the beasts, right? And a lion is considered majestic and powerful. The eagle represents the king of the birds. Now, I know a lot of people today in futurism try to make the eagle the United States, you see. But what you're doing is you're you're imposing present-day typology on ancient typology. And here, Daniel understood this. He understood the lions. I mean, he saw them every day, and when he went to work, he would pass these gates going in to Babylon. I have a picture of one here in a magazine, or I did have. Maybe it's in the one I I left at home. But Daniel, every day, uh, passed this thing. I guess I don't have it. But there he would see a lion with wings on it. He would also see a dragon with wings on it. So these were, these were things that were very familiar to him. 
And notice it said, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. Now, how many wings did the lion have? Two. And it symbolizes swiftness, okay? And the lion is majesty, majestic. And it says, I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, came down with his mental illness, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a man, was given a beast's heart and went around on fours. But here it's the opposite way around, you see. We find that Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His son, the grandson, Belshazzar, who's on the throne at this time, instead of being a, a majestic leader that people feared and respected, he was a playboy. He liked to play. He liked to, uh, uh, well, he was a spoiled brat. Can I put it that way? And he liked to party all the time. In plain words, he had lost the respect of the people. He himself did not have the heart of a king, legislatively or militarily or anything. And because of this, his empire was weakening. And notice that the wings were plucked off of it. We find that no longer was he going to uh, expand the empire. If anything, the empire was going to contract under his administration. And so, verse 5 goes on to say, And behold, another beast. Now, Daniel doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the lion because he's aware that Babylon's about to fall. So that's kind of passe. I mean, it's like talking about Napoleon in today's time. That's behind us. He's now looking ahead. The next kingdom, the second beast. This is like a bear. Now, I realize today Russia is, you know, they use the bear as one of their symbols. But that doesn't mean that this prophecy relates to Russia. We find that what God is representing here is the next power that comes along. History and scripture tells us the next power to come along was the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, this bear is very interesting the way it's described. Before, when we looked at Daniel 2, there were two arms, right? On the silver chest. Silver isn't as worth as much as gold. And a bear, even though I wouldn't want to mess with one, it's not as majestic as a lion. A lion is swift, but a bear kind of lumbers along. But you don't want to get caught in its, you know, in its bear hug. Or you, you'll, you'll be sorry you did. And so we find here this second animal, the bear. And notice what it says here. It raised up itself on one side. Now, I don't remember if it was in this seminar or a different one. I mentioned that the Bible uses a principle called recapitulation. Big fancy term. It means nothing more than, and sometimes it's explained as, repeat and expand. In plain words, the Bible in these prophecies 
covers the same territory, but each time it does, it may use different symbols, but each time it does, it fills in a little more about the prophecy. And the next time it repeats it, maybe under different symbols, but it will explain more and more and more until you get the full picture. And this is what's happening here. Now, in Daniel 2, the silver chest, he had two arms, the Medes and the Persians together, right? All right, in this prophecy, notice that he has, the bear has two shoulders, but one of them is higher than the other. Why? Because when King Cyrus took over, his grandfather was king of the Medes. And he had another grandfather who was king of the Persians. So he inherited the combined empire. But later on, the Medes kind of fell out of power and the Persians gained ascendancy. And so this is filling in a little more detail. He, one is higher than the other. And it says here that it had three ribs in its mouth. Three ribs in between the teeth of it. It's interesting that when the Medo-Persian Empire took over, it ripped up three other kingdoms. Three other kingdoms went down when the Medo-Persians came to power. One was Babylon. The second was Lydia. Lydia is the area around Turkey. There was an empire there. And the other was Egypt. Egypt fell under the Persians. And so what did it do? These three powerful empires, one after another, boom, 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 are ripped up. And it said that it devoured much flesh. Anybody that got in its way, the Persian Empire would chew them up and spit them out. You see. And so this bear adds a little more detail. It tells about the Persians. Daniel's alive at this time. This hasn't happened yet. These empires were still around when he was there. But he is not only predicting the fall of Babylon, he's also predicting the fall of Persia. He's also predicting the fall of Egypt at this time. So this prophecy, or this one verse, covers a lot of territory. As we look at verse 6, it says, After this I beheld and lo, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Huh, what a description. It was a leopard-like beast. It had four heads and four wings. Now, if two wings represent swiftness, what would four wings represent? Double swiftness, right? And notice here, too, a leopard, the leopard family, they're, they're among the fastest of the cat family. Um, they've clocked leopards at 60, 70 miles an hour and even more when they run. They can't last long. I mean, they're, you know, they have bursts of energy, but they wear out quickly. But nonetheless, they are swift in what they do. And under the Greeks, Alexander the Great was the one who went against the Persians 
and brought the Persian Empire down. It was during the Persian Empire that Queen Esther was living. And Alexander came after that empire. He was actually a Macedonian. His father was Philip of Macedon. Macedonia is just north of Greece. But at that time, the Greek city-states, they were fighting among themselves. And Philip of Macedon said, you know, I can bring Greece under my control and extend Macedonia as the controlling power here. They're fighting among themselves, Athens against Sparta and so forth. So what he would do is he would go down and he'd send ambassadors down and say, you know what the Athenians are planning to do to you? And I'm on your side. And then he'd go over here to the Spartans and he he would say, you know what they plan to do to you? I'm on your side. And he'd get them fighting among themselves. And then when they were weak enough, he came in with his Macedonian troops and took over Greece. Now his son, Alexander, when he comes to the throne, Alexander really liked the, the Greek culture and he adopted it and he expanded it. Now, Alexander used something that was called lightning warfare. Alexander, when he would attack a nation, he would wham, he'd hit it. He'd leave some men behind to settle it, and then he'd move on. He wasn't so much a ruler as he was a conqueror. He'd hit, move, hit, move, hit, move. Interestingly enough, Adolf Hitler studied Alexander the Great. Adolf Hitler adopted this kind of warfare during the Second World War. What was it called? Anybody remember? It was called Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg. You hit, you run. You hit, you run. You keep moving. That way, the people up ahead of you, they haven't heard about what happened behind them. And so, before the news gets to them and they can get out of your way, your troops are already there. And so, Alexander the Great was the one who perfected this. And he had other tactics that he used too. Now, when Alexander died, Alexander, of course, was really a great general. But he had some character flaws, one of which was he liked to drink. And interestingly enough, he was the same age that Jesus was when he died. Alexander got into a drinking bout with some of his generals and he bet them he could drink them under the table. Well, he succeeded. But in the process, it broke his health. And he got a high fever. And within a few days or so, Alexander was dead. By the way, archaeologists are supposed to have discovered Alexander's sepulcher today, sepulcher. Uh, It's still in existence. But what happened to Alexander? After he died, he had a young son who was on the throne. And his wife was regent for the boy. Well, Alexander had four generals who said, look, we don't want a woman and a kid ruling the empire. Let's get rid of them. And so the four generals broke the empire up among them. 
There was Cassander. There was Lysimachus. There was Ptolemy. And there was Seleucus. Now, Seleucus and Ptolemy were the stronger of the two. And eventually, they conquered the other two. And Seleucus basically took over what we refer to as Syria and the territory of the Middle East. Ptolemy, he went down into Egypt and he took over the Egyptian portion of the empire. And so we find that later on, we're going to run into this when we get to chapter 11, you're going to find that the Seleucid kings and the Ptolemaic kings are going to be fighting back and forth. And guess what's stuck right in the middle? The Holy Land. You see, right there. So sometimes they were on the side of Egypt, sometimes they were on the side of Syria, and they kept bouncing back and forth, which causes great trouble. Constant conflict going on back and forth here. And so this was predicted in this prophecy that his empire would be broken up. The story goes, and I don't know how true it is, but there's a, a legend that says that Alexander, he kept pushing from Greece, which is in Europe, he kept pushing further and further and further east. And as he got all the way to the Indus River, which is in India. And he wanted to go on into China. But his general said, look, sir, we are so far from our home that we don't want to go any further. And they kind of outvoted him. And the story says that Alexander went up on a a hill and he just looked beyond the Indus River and he started to weep because it was his dream to keep going. But now do you understand why? Because the Greeks moved farther and farther to the east. Do you understand why the people in Palestine, during the time of Jesus, they were speaking Greek? This is the reason why the churches in Asia Minor and all the way up into um, even Russia, they're called the Greek Orthodox Church because the Greek influence continued on. As a matter of fact, the Greeks still have an influence on us today. We have a form of government called democracy. Democracy is a Greek term. It was a, a Greek form. We even think the way the Greeks do. They think differently than the way the Hebrews do. I think I mentioned that to you once before about how the Hebrews think about time. To the Hebrews, the past is important and the future is important, but the present isn't much. For instance, I went over and right there's a bottle, right? I took Sherry's bottle. Did I take that in the past or the present or the future? Really? Is the bottle there? It's past now, isn't it? You see? How long is the present? Just a snap of the fingers. So the present isn't important until you look at the past and then you see what's ahead in the future. 
And you'll find in the Bible that they repeatedly do this. They will talk about how God has led them in the past. Here we are now, and this is what God wants us to do. This is where he's taking us. Whereas the Greek mindset, which a lot of us follow today, say, ah, history's dead, let it stay dead. And the future, that's way down the road, don't worry about it. It's only today that's important. Especially among our young people, that's very common. You say, oh, I don't care, I'll take care of that when I get old. Or, well, that's behind us, forget it, let's move on. You see, because we're thinking the way the Greeks did. So there are still influences that are there. Chapter 7, verse 7. It says, After this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Now remember in Daniel 2, we, we went from gold to silver to brass to what? What was the next metal? Iron. Okay, so this would be comparable to the iron. How can we say that? Well, let's look and see. And a fourth beast, and this was dreadful and terrible. It was strong exceedingly. And it had great, what kind of teeth? Iron teeth. So here in this vision, he's connecting it with Daniel 2. I mentioned to you before that if you see something that's mentioned here, and you see it elsewhere mentioned, those two thoughts are connected. So this automatically connects it with Daniel 2, you see. And it says, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue. Now another word for residue is remnant. It's what's left. The residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Now what's it mean? It's stamped on the residue. The Babylonians persecuted God's people. The Persians persecuted God's people. The Greeks persecuted God's people. And now, what was left of them, the Romans are going to try to stomp out of existence. And it was under the Roman power that we find that Jesus was born. And sure enough, who was there to try to wipe them out? It was King Herod who was working for the Romans. And then you find Pilate who was working for the Romans who's at his crucifixion. And it was the Romans from there on who would persecute and try to stomp out uh, his followers. And notice it had ten horns. Now, Daniel understood the first three powers, because they were in existence at his time. But this fourth one, he was very curious about, because at this time, this is about, you know, the uh, 500s to 600s BC, Rome at that time was just an upstart city in Italy. It was just starting to feel its Cheerios at that time and expanding itself. So, Daniel couldn't quite relate to Rome. He was very curious about it. And especially a beast with ten horns. Now, this has been drawn in many different ways. It's called the nondescript beast. But these horns are important. Why? In Daniel, what happened in Daniel 2? We find that the Roman Empire 
fell apart from within into how many parts? Ten parts. There were ten nations that helped to bring down the Roman Empire. They were, see if I can get them all straight on my fingers here. There were the Anglo-Saxons. They made up England. There were the Franks. That would be the French. The Burgundians. They are the area around Switzerland. There were the Ostrogoths. They were in the area around Austria. Then the Visigoths. They're both Goths. But Visigoths means the Western Goths. Ostrogoths means the Eastern Goths. So they split up and the Ostrogoths became around Syria. The Visigoths went over and they took over Spain. And then there was another tribe called the Suevi. They took Portugal. And then moving down further, we find, how many am I up to? Anglo-Saxons, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Franks, Burgundians, Suevi. Um, who am I missing? Pardon? I didn't hear you. Say it once more. Well, the Anglo-Saxons together, uh, they just came at different times. But when you go down into Italy, you run into the Heruli. And then they, they moved down into Italy. Then there were the Lombards. They also went down into Italy. And there's a section of Italy today called Lombardy. And then finally going down through Italy and across North Africa were the Vandals. And the Vandals destroyed just for the sake of destroying, you see. So what happened, the Roman Empire actually broke up into ten parts. And notice that there are ten horns here. A horn symbolizes authority, power, uh, a kingdom. Even today, who is the boss in many of these countries? It's the man or the woman who wears the pointy hat. What is a pointy hat called? Oh, come on. What's a pointy hat called? Well, that isn't what I had in mind. But if I had a hat that had little points all over the top of it, it would be called a what? It would be called a crown. That's what the points of the crown symbolize. They symbolize horns. That is a sign of authority. You know, the Vikings used to wear these horns on their helmets to show that they're in charge. It actually goes back to Nimrod. There's a, there's a tradition that said Nimrod, when he killed, what was it? A, 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 I think it was a, an, an ox or something. I can't remember. He took the horns and he made a little hat and wore it so that he would stand out in the crowd and they would know he was the boss. And so we find that these ten horns represent the ten kingdoms that were to rule in place of Rome. And notice that the teeth of this creature was made out of iron. Notice verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom... There were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. 
Now, this is an extremely interesting text. And this immediately draws Daniel's attention. He's fascinated with this creature. What happened? First off, you notice that this little horn comes up among the others, right? So, it can't come up in Canada. It can't come up in the United States. It can't come up in China. Why? Because they were not a part of the ten tribes that brought down the Roman Empire. So where would we logically look for this power? In Europe, right? Okay. Now notice it says it came up among them, so it must have come up in one of the existing areas at that time. Secondly, the Roman Empire officially fell in the year 476 A.D. The last Roman emperor sat on the throne in 476 A.D. So, this power has to come up after 476. All right? And he's different from the other horns in that he has eyes. The other horns don't have eyes. What what are eyes for? You know, I remember when I was teaching school, some of the kids, we would give them IQ tests, you know. And what I would do was, when I would pass out the IQ test, I would talk to the kids and I would look them straight in the eye. And I would just have a conversation but look them straight in the eye. And then I would try to guess what the results of that test was going to be. And it wasn't, it wasn't too hard. I was pretty close. Why? Because the eyes are a sign of intelligence. You know, a person, a person who lacks intelligence, you know, their eyes are kind of glossed over. Of course, they could be taking a nap. Maybe they stayed up too late the night before. But you can oftentimes tell a person who's really alert by looking at their eyes. So what are eyes connected with? They're connected with intelligence. They're also connected with oversight. What do you call a person who's in charge of other people? He's an overseer, right? He looks after them. He looks over them. He has authority over them. Now, the interesting part is... In early Christianity, before, well, actually up until about the year 600. Now, this, this power comes up in four, after 476, okay? 538 is after 476, right? Muhammad comes along about 600. So, we find that this little horn power starts to begin to feel its power between 538 up until the time of Muhammad. Now, at this time, he came up among the others. He, he was considered an equal uh, overseer with others. The early Christian church had five centers that were considered the, the center of Christianity. They were called holy sees. Holy sees meant that they supervised the churches around them. 
There were five of them. The first, Alexandria, Egypt. But that would fall quite early. That would fall to the Mohammedans as they spread out. And then there was Antioch in Syria. The Muslims took that over. Then another one was Jerusalem. And that fell to the Muslims. And that's what the Crusades were all about, trying to get it back for the Muslims. And then the other one was Constantinople in Turkey. That falls to the Muslims. Therefore, it leaves only one of the original five holy sees left. And that holy see claimed authority over all Christianity, not only over Christianity, but over all religions, even irreligious people. And it had to come up in Europe after 476. And it was different from the others, you see. And it said it had a mouth to speak great things. Now, the word great things here, you will find in some translations, it says blasphemous things, boastful things. So this little horn that sprouts up now says that it has the authority that only God claims. What did the Jews accuse Jesus of when he said, your sins are forgiven you? They said, you are committing blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. But this little horn power claims that it can forgive men's sins. As a matter of fact, during the Middle Ages, I think it was Pope, uh, Pope Julius II, he wanted to be addressed as Lord God the Pope. Not only that too, but he started to claim the, the title of Vicar of Christ. Vicar means substitute. It means, uh, you know, you die a vicarious death, you die for somebody else. All right, a vicar is one who represents God. Well, when Jesus went back to heaven, who did he send as his official representative on earth? The Holy Spirit. So this power is now claiming authority that Jesus designated to the Holy Spirit. And so we find it's an attack, and not only that too, but Jesus became our high priest in the heavenly courts where sins are forgiven. And he becomes our only high priest. But now this power says, I am the high priest of all Christianity. That's an attack on Jesus. So you have attack against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you see. That's a, a triple blasphemy that comes up. And so we find here that it would come up, but it would do more than that. We find that this little horn, as it comes up, will also rip up three of the other horns. Now, in the 400s and thereabouts, it extends beyond that, there came up a fellow by the name of uh, Arius. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being. Oh, yes, he, he may have been the Son of God, but he was a created being. But Rome was saying, no, he's not a created being. He's 
He's co-eternal with the Father, and they're right on that point. But the Arian uh, philosophy or uh, belief began to spread, especially the Eastern Empire. It, it began to spread very widely. And some of those tribes, when they came in and invaded Rome, they were Arian. And because of that, they did not accept the authority of the Roman church. And here, when they come in, one of them was the Heruli. And they came in, took Rome at different time periods. The Vandals came in, and they sacked Rome, but they didn't accept uh, the Roman doctrine. And finally, we find the Ostrogoths come in. Matter of fact, it was the Ostrogoths who brought down the last Roman emperor. And they surrounded Rome. And the reigning pontiff said, what shall I do? The other tribes, they accepted Roman authority, the Roman church. But these people didn't. And he's surrounded by them. And he says, oh, who will deliver me from these people? And so the Roman church, in connection with the Franks, which were the French at the time, or were the Franks at the time, they asked them to come in and deliver them from these heretics. And they said, if you come in and deliver me from these, you can have their property. You can have told this to the different tribes. Whoever delivers me, you can have the property of these folks. In plain words, wipe them out. This was genocide. Genocide on the part of the church. It rips them up by the root, it says. And so what happens? One tribe after another comes in and rips up these Aryan tribes. And so the Herulis become extinct. The Vandals, they go into extinction. And the Ostrogoths, they also were ripped up. Now, oh, the other one I forgot to mention was the Alemanni. They're the Germans. Those, that was another tribe I forgot to mention. But the Alemanni and the Germans kind of went back and forth. But basically, he said, if you Germans and French come in and get rid of these Ostrogoths for me, you can have their property. Now, this is the reason why in the Second World War, when Hitler invades Austria, everybody said, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. He says, why not? It's ours. The Pope gave it to us in ancient times. We're just claiming back again what's ours. And all of a sudden, they kind of hush-hushed about it. You see. So you can see, even in modern times, some of these ancient things overlapped. And so now the papacy could rule unchecked. And in the year 508, he was given the authority to be corrector of heretics. But he couldn't do it because he was surrounded by these Arians. But in 538, the the Ostrogoths were finally rooted out. And from that time on, 538 onward, he would be the corrector of the heretics. 
anyone who disagreed with him, he could persecute, could burn at the stake, whatever. And the scripture goes on to say that this little horn power would be in power for 1260 years. Now that's interesting. Some people try to say, well, the little horn power is referring to, and they they come up with everything. Some will apply that to uh, Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan and so forth. I know Ronald Reagan was old, but he wasn't 1260 years old, you see. And he didn't persecute people and so forth. They're trying to make make uh, some of these political leaders the Antichrist. No, the Antichrist was a power that came up and is still with us. Notice what it says in verse 9. I beheld until the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Now notice, when are the thrones cast down? We find in Revelation also, the thrones are put in place. What is it? The judgment is being set. So this little, little horn power would rule unchecked from 538 when the Ostrogoths were removed for 1260 years until the time of the beginning of the judgment. Well, if you take 538 and 1260 and add them together, what do you come up with? You come up with 1798. What happened in 1798? We find that the papacy falls in the French Revolution when Napoleon sent General Berthier in there and arrested the Pope. And he lingered in jail and finally died. And the papacy lost its power. It lost its papal states. And then we find in the 1800s that they, one by one, the papal states were taken away from them until finally they were con- confined basically to Vatican City. And the Pope considered himself a captive in in Vatican City. But later on, the prophecy will say that the power would be restored to him. And in 1929, it was uh, Mussolini who signed a concordat with the Vatican to reestablish them as a state. So not only did they have ecclesiastical power, but they also had real estate. They were a political nation once again. This is the reason why when the Pope comes to visit the United States, they will build a platform for him. They'll let him speak at the United Nations. They will, they will uh, let him, at government expense, they will you know, host big uh, ceremonies for him. Why? Not because he's a religious leader. It's because he's a political leader. He's the king of a country. Smallest country in the world. Size of about an 18-hole golf course. Now, it's not 
his territorial power that makes him a powerful influence today. Because when's the last time you got attacked by the Swiss Guard? I've seen the Swiss Guard. They're not a very big army. I don't think that, you know, they're going to attack too many countries. Where does his power come from? It comes from controlling the mind. It comes from his religious and political influence. So he was stouter than the other horns in that he had a power that they did not have. And his power would last up until the judgment. And notice in verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came uh, forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Now this is talking about the judgment. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. The beginning of the judgment, when we start moving from the fall of the papacy in 1798 until the end of the 2300-day prophecy, year prophecy, which ends in 1844, that was a time period for the gospel to start spreading to the world. We find many of the missionary movements starting to come up at that time. And in 1844, when the 2,300-year prophecy of Daniel comes to an end, we start moving into the time of the end. We start moving into the judgment. And notice that God judges by books. He keeps records. He keeps records of our good deeds. He keeps records of our thoughts. He's got the book of life. He's got all these, these books. Now, I don't know his record-keeping system or how he does it. But no wonder it takes him a while to go through. If you start to judge everybody from Adam onward, it's going to take him a while. And the Bible says that the judgment begins with the house of God. It begins with the righteous. You don't have to worry about the wicked because if you're not among the righteous, you're automatically in the other group, right? So if he's starting back with Adam and he's going through every thought that Adam had, every sin he committed, it's going to take him a while to get through the A's. You know, Q is further down the, uh, down the alphabet. And uh, I'm going to change my name to Zelensky or something so I get down toward the end. But anyway, uh, I don't know how he's doing it. But he starts with the, uh, the believers. It also, he starts with the dead. And then he moves into the judgment of the living. Because don't forget, when Jesus comes back, he not only re- resurrects the, the righteous dead, he also changes the righteous living. So he has to know which ones are the righteous ones and which ones are not. So this is called the pre-advent judgment. It's the judgment of God's people before Christ comes. The wicked are taken care of after that. And notice that you are saved by grace, but you are judged by your works. And those are written in the book. Look at verse 11. And behold then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So what is this basically saying? That the little horn power would be with us right up 
until the coming of Christ. You see. So, the little horn power, Daniel calls him the little horn. Paul calls him the Antichrist, and John calls him the uh, man of lawlessness. If I remember correctly, I may have that mixed up. But you see, he's got different names, but it's describing the same power. So those who are looking for the Antichrist way in the future or way in the past, they're missing out that that Antichrist power is still among us. And that he will grow in power and influence in these last days. Look at verse 12. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away from them. I'm working right now on a sermon called Dominion. What does dominion mean? But their dominion was taken away from them. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Their influence is still with us today. We still have Roman laws, you see. I mentioned about Greek form of government. The influence of some of these are still with us today, even though they are gone. In verse 13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now that is a messianic term. It's referring to the Messiah. He came with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, does this say that the Son of Man is coming to earth? No. It doesn't say. Where is he going? He's going to the Ancient of Days. Now, in the holy place, there was the table of showbread on the side of the north. That's the side that Satan wanted to sit on, right? There were two piles of bread. They symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel, I know. But... They also symbolize the Father and the Sons sitting on the throne in the holy place. But what happens is during the judgment, the Father moves to the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens then? The high priest, the Son, he moves into that second compartment before the Father. So we have moved from the holy place part of the judgment where our sins are forgiven, now we move into the great Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so we find that this is what's taking place here. He's not coming to earth in this. Christ is moving from one place to another following his Father for the judgment. Look at verse 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So what happens when he goes before the Father in the day of judgment? He is given the people whose sins are forgiven. The Father says, I forgive them. They're yours. Christ is getting ready to come get them, you see. And then verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He was really wiped away by what he saw. See, Daniel didn't understand his vision. Won't it be great when you get to heaven, and Sherry, you're going to conduct a Daniel seminar And Daniel's going to be sitting where she is. And 
Daniel's going to say, ah, could you explain this little horn power to me? You'll have the opportunity to, to tell Daniel what it was. You know more about it than he did. And he was the prophet, you see. And so we find here, I came near unto the one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. What's all this mean? So he told me, and he made known the interpretation of the things. Notice Daniel doesn't interpret it. The angel interpreted it for him. Look at 17. These great beasts are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Daniel says, yeah, I know that. I've been through that in Daniel too. And then verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And Daniel says, yeah, I know when the Messiah comes that we will inherit the new earth forever and be happy ever after. But look at verse 19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. Notice he goes back to that fourth beast. He's fascinated by that little horn, which was diverse or different from all the others. Exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were like iron, of iron, and his nails of brass, and he devoured and break in pieces, and he stopped the residue with his feet. He was a persecuting power. Verse 20. And the ten horns that were in the head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great things whose look was more stout than his fellows. So he's fascinated. He's looking at the papacy coming up. It comes up in Europe. It comes up in one of the, the horn powers, which was Rome. He comes up after 476 when the empire falls. He would speak blasphemous words, which means he could claims power to forgive sins, uh, he claims titles that belong to the divine alone. He would also be a persecuting power. And he would reign unchecked over kings for 1260 years before he's brought low. And his power would remain until the judgment. And so we find when you put all these together, there's only one power in all history who hits every one of those things right on the head. And that is found in Rome. And so Daniel's fascinated with this. He was looking at our time. And he says, I'd be held. And the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. It beat them up, beat up the saints for 1260 years. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. And so we find in verse 23, he says, Thus he said, The fourth power shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all uh, kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And now, notice here, he adds another element. 
You know, he's putting another spoonful in here. He says he will think to change times and laws. Right now, we go 12 o'clock to 12 o'clock on our calendar, right? Uh Uh-uh, in the time of Jesus, they went from sunset to sunset, you see. We have adopted Roman time. Actually, it traces back to Babylonian time, but nonetheless, we have adopted the Gregorian calendar. Gregorian calendar has more to do with days and months and years than it does, you know, the, the daily cycle. But anyway, we have switched over. Also, times and laws. What laws? It's referring to the laws of God, the commandments of God. One of the first things to go was actually to the second commandment about making images. Because they started to adopt some of these images. And then by the time you get to Constantine in 321, he passes his first Sunday law. And he calls a council also, which means that you had an unconverted pagan Roman emperor. Yeah, theoretically, he's supposed to become a Christian, but there's a doubt whether he ever became a Christian. He wasn't baptized till his deathbed. And even then, they weren't sure he was still alive when they baptized him. But nonetheless, you found the Roman emperor was the one who was ruling over that church council that was called. It wasn't the bishops. It wasn't the bishop of Rome. It was the emperor who was. But later on, the bishop of Rome would take emperor's powers when Constantine moves away. Okay, so he would think to change times and laws. So the second commandment is knocked out. Now you can worship images. You also knock out the, uh, the Sabbath. And we adopted the day of the sun, you see. And later on in the Middle Ages, this came more with the barbarian tribes that came in, especially the Nordic tribes. But they changed what the days were called. In, in Spanish today, Saturday is called Sabado. In many languages, it still has the Sab or Sabbath in it. But it's in the Germanic and Nordic language that we call it Saturday. Isn't it interesting that Saturn is the seventh planet and Sabbath is the seventh day, you see? And they began to bring in some of these pagan ideas and terminologies. And they adopted the day of the sun because Jesus is the son of righteousness. You see how they rationalized some of this? And these things began to come in. And notice in uh, verse 26, And the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion. He lost his dominion in 1798. And he's going to grow in power until Jesus comes again. And at that time, he's going to lose it entirely. To consume and to destroy it unto the end. Verse 27, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. When Jesus comes back again, he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth. Not immediately, but after the millennium, and he purifies it again. But even so, 
when Jesus comes back again, we go to heaven. We have a chance to look over the books. We have a part in determining what happens to the devil and his angels. Don't forget that the hellfire is reserved for the devil and his angels. We're not supposed to be in it. If we're there, it's by choice, you see. But we have a chance to look over the books, and it says that we will have authority over angels. So apparently, we're starting already to inherit the kingdom. And then when Jesus comes back with the holy city, we come with it. And then finally, when all things are made new and he opens the gate, we go out and possess the land. But we will still, apparently, at least 144,000 that are with Jesus wherever he goes, they will still have authority. We may have authority over some other planet. I don't know. I'm not going to elaborate. That's up to him to figure out what we do. And they will serve him and obey him. And then verse 28, he wraps it up and he says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cognitions much troubled me. In plain words, my head was spinning. And my countenance changed. I began to, I began to look haggard and tired trying to figure all this out. But I kept the matter in my heart. Now it's interesting, the Bible says of Mary that Jesus said and did many things she didn't understand. But it says she kept these matters in her heart. In plain words, she thought, what does this mean? How, how, how's all this going to work out? Well, Daniel's having a similar experience. And he will wonder about this for a while until the angel comes back and explains it further to him. And thus, we come to the end of chapter 7. And as we summarize chapter 7, Belshazzar is on the throne. Babylon's about to come to an end. Daniel sees four great beasts in a dream. The last one mystified him. And on the last beast... He saw ten horns, three of which were plucked up to make room for a stout horn that had eyes and a mouth. And from 538 to 1798, church and state were united under papal Rome, and they persecuted the nonconformists for exactly 1,260 years. And you can calculate the math on those dates. And that little horn power was weakened but then its power would later be restored and it would still be around until the beginning of the judgment. And so we conclude this chapter. Now, here again, in Daniel 2 is the great granddaddy of all the prophecies. It's the broad outline. Now he's starting to fill in the details as we go and we learn new things. Time for our quiz. You can either jot it down in your mind or on paper. Number one, who had the vision in Daniel 2? I said Daniel 2, not 7. Who had the vision in Daniel 2? Okay, number question two. Who was the Babylonian king in chapter 7? Question three, in chapter 7, verse 8, Daniel saw three horns plucked up by the roots to make room for a horn with eyes. True or false? Question four. Daniel understood the first three beasts. True or false? 
Number five, the little horn would have persecuting power until the time that the judgment begins, true or false. And then the bonus point number six, how many years would the persecuting power have supremacy? 490 years, 2300 years, or 1260 years? How many got them all right? We'll see. See if you're a false prophet or not. All right, here are the answers. Number one, in the vision in Daniel 2, where the vision in Daniel? I'm sorry, that's my error. That should say, who had the vision in Daniel in chapter 7? It was Daniel. In Daniel 2, if you had Nebuchadnezzar, you were correct. Yeah, that was my error, not yours. I, I didn't change the number on that. Number two, who was the Babylonian king in chapter 7? Belshazzar. All right, number three, in chapter 7, verse 8, the three horns that were plucked up by the root made room for the horns and eyes, with eyes, and that's true. Number four, Daniel understood the first three beasts. Yes, he did. It was that fourth one that mystified him and the horns thereof. Number five, the little horn would have persecuting powers until the time that the judgment begins. That is true. And number six, how many years was this power to persecute? 1,260 years. Now, how many of you got them right? Ah, more than thought they did. Okay. Well, with that, your homework assignment, reread chapter 7 and read chapter 8. Now, after chapter 8, we're going to go to chapter 5. I'm not good at math, you can see. <laughs> I can't count. We went from 4 to 7. We'll go 7 to 8, and then we'll go to 5. And then we'll make some other adjustments. And please invite someone to join us, okay? Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We're thankful that we have a God who sees the future and makes the future known to us. Help us, Lord, to believe the prophets and to know that our God rules and we know what you have predicted for the future. Help us to be strong in our faith and to be consistent in our lives that we may be ready to enter into that great promise you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom.